Harper Audio presents The Mirth of a Nation. Audio companion, fellow traveler, and friend for life. Laugh tracks from America's most trusted humor anthology. Performed by Tony Roberts, Susie Essman, and others. The Short Essay That Conquered the Planet by Tim Carville. It started quietly. The writer finished the short essay and sat back pleased. He sent it off for publication, and the essay was distributed into the world. A few people read it. They showed it to others. Others began reading it. Soon, they noticed changes. They felt younger, more alive. Their warts and blemishes disappeared. Their reproductive organs swelled. Their hearts were filled with song. They began to tell others about the essay. Soon, the essay was being copied, emailed around the world with an appropriate copyright fee always, always being sent back to the author, and placed on websites. It was tacked up in offices, schools, and churches. It was read from pulpits and from podia and from the balcony of the Vatican. It was appropriated by a columnist for the Boston Globe. The essay was set to music. It became an opera, a play. A blockbuster film. It became a well-received ballet and an avant-garde production at the Brooklyn Academy of Music staged by Robert Wilson with music by Tom Waits, whose music seemed happy for quite possibly the first time ever. The essay became the shortest piece of writing ever to receive the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. It went on to win the Caldecott Medal, the Nobel Peace Prize, and the Jean Hirschholt Humanitarian Award. Then... It swept the Grammys. Miraculous reports began to trickle in. The essay had closed an unclosable wound. It had brought peace where there had once been strife. It scratched the places that could not be itched. It tamed lions. Word of the essay spread to other lands. It was translated into many languages. Relief organizations stopped shipping food and began simply dropping the essay on blighted areas, which miraculously revived. The essay created droughts where there were floods and floods where there were droughts. It converted water to wine and vice versa. It partitioned those parts of the world that had hitherto been thought to be unpartitionable. It sowed peace and love. It raised the dead and smote the wicked. After months of planning, the people of the world at a given hour on a given day all stood in the streets and read the essay aloud in unison, Billions of voices mingling into one as the essay soared out into the heavens in a fantastic global murmur. The heavens parted, and the sun shone on the entire world at once in a cataclysmic expression of joy, and all animals were given the power of speech, and all humans were given the ability to fly, and the unicorns returned. The writer beheld all this and smiled. This, he thought to himself, is a fine beginning. Parlez-vous Francaise by Dave Barry This summer, for my vacation, I went to Paris, France. I went there to follow in the footsteps of such great writers as Ernest Hemingway, Henry Miller, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, all of whom, for the record, are dead. I blame the Parisian drivers. Paris has only one vacant parking space, which is currently under heavy police guard in the Louvre Museum. 
This means that thousands of frustrated motorists have been driving around the city since the reign of King Maurice XVII looking for a space, and the way they relieve their frustrations is by aiming at pedestrians, whom they will follow onto the sidewalk if necessary. Often, the only way to escape them is to duck into one of Paris's historic cathedrals, which fortunately are located about every 25 feet, or 83.13 liters. Nevertheless, it's very pleasant to walk around Paris and feel, as so many Americans feel when they're in that incredibly beautiful city, fat. Because the fact is that we Americans look like enormous sneaker-wearing beef cattle compared to the Parisians, who tend to be very slim, with an average body weight of 38 pounds, 7.83 meters. It's odd that the French appear to be in such good shape, because the major activity in Paris, aside from trying to run over pedestrians, is sitting around in cafes for days at a time, looking French. Sometimes we Americans try to blend into the cafe scene, but the French immediately spot us as impostors, because we cannot pronounce the secret French code letter, which is R. They have learned to say R in a certain secret way that sounds as though they're trying to dislodge a live eel from their esophagus. It is virtually impossible for a non-French person to make this sound. This is how the Parisian café waiters figure out that you're an American, even if you're attempting to pass as French. The waiter says, Bonjour, je suspect que vous êtes Américain, which translates to, Good day, I suspect that you are an American. And you say, Mais je ne porte pas les Nikes, which means, but I am not wearing the sneakers. And the waiter says, OK, Monsieur Pantalon Intelligent, prononcez le mot Rouen, which means, OK, Mr. Smarty Pants, pronounce the word Rouen. And you say, Rouen. And the waiter says, Si vous êtes Français, je suis l'homme de la batte, which means, if you're French, I am Batman. The other surefire way to tell the difference between French people and Americans in a cafe is that the French are all smoking, whereas the Americans are all trying to figure out how much to tip. The tourist guidebooks are vague about tipping. They tell you that a service charge is usually included in your bill, but it is not always included. And even if it is included, it is not necessarily totally included. On top of that, to convert from French money to American, you have to divide by six, and I have yet to meet anybody who can do this. And so, while the French are lounging and smoking and writing novels, we Americans spend our café time darting nervous glances at the bill, which is often just a piece of paper with a lone, mysterious, not divisible by six number scrawled on it, such as 83. We almost always end up over-tipping, because we're afraid that otherwise the waiter will make us say another R-word. I frankly don't know how the French handle tipping, because in my two weeks in Paris, I never saw a French person actually leave a café. Not that I'm being critical. As a professional journalist, I like the idea of a society where it's considered an acceptable occupation to basically sit around and drink. In fact, I like almost everything about Paris. The city is gorgeous, the food is wonderful, and they have these really swoopy, high-tech public pay toilets on the streets that look as though if you went into one, you might get beamed up to the mothership. Also, Paris has a terrific subway system, le metro, literally, the metro. 
I always feel safe and comfortable in the metro, although one time when I was waiting for a train, the loudspeaker made an announcement in French, which was repeated in English, and I swear this was the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Robbers are in the station. Thank you. None of the Parisians seemed the least bit alarmed, and nobody robbed me, which was a good thing, because I would have had no idea how much to tip. I have run out of space here, but in next week's column I will tell you about some of the famous tourist attractions of Paris, such as uh, the Loc de Triomphe, Notre Dame, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, etc. So until next week, as the French say, au revoir, literally, Rouen.